I love it. This is, um, this is the remnant that stayed behind and didn't make the pilgrimage to Destin um, this week. So, yeah, that's right. We used to always, the, the joke when I was in school uh, was always like, if you weren't going to go anywhere for spring break, you'd always tell people you're going to L.A. And they're like, oh, cool. Like, it meant Louisville area. Um, or, in, or in Oldham County, where we grew up, it was uh, D.C., downtown Crestwood, um, which is hopping and popping these days. We have a Dollar Tree now. We're awesome. Um, and two stoplights. So what's up now? Um, hey, real quick, uh, something before we, we, before we dive in this morning. If you uh, missed last week, if you're a guy and you missed last week, uh, we ended our men's series uh, last week, and it was a, an unbelievable moment uh, where men got the opportunity to come forward uh, to kind of sign their name on, look, I, I'm ready to step into what biblical masculinity is, to be the man God, God desired and designed me to be. Uh, if you missed that opportunity last week, around the other side of the curtain, we've got the table set up with the book and the bracelets uh, that kind of are that reminder of who we're supposed to be, the resolution you can take home of, of who we are designed to be. If you, you want to do that, number one, or if you have questions about that, see me after service. Uh, we'll be over there uh, to, to do that. Um, it's, it was an awesome moment where men got to come forward and, and, and again, just be prayed over by our elders and leadership uh, to step into the roles that God uh, designed us to be as men, uh, as husbands, as fathers, as sons. Uh, so if you want to do that today, you missed last week, you have questions about that, it's set up on the other side of the curtain. We're going to leave that up for a while uh, so people have the opportunity to do that. So if you want to talk more about that or have questions about that, I uh, would love to, to chat after service uh, so you get the opportunity to join in if you missed last Sunday. All right, let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive in this morning. Jesus, uh, we love you, and, and I love the songs that we got to sing this morning. Lord, the battle belongs to you. So many of the things that we face in our own lives, but even when we turn on the TV or when news comes across our phones or whatever, uh, God, I think it's just a, it's a good thing to be reminded that, hey, you got this, and the battle belongs to you, and you don't lose. And so, Father, I pray today that we can just lean into that and lean back into that comfort of the battle belongs to you. This is not ours to fight, uh, but instead, Lord, our eyes are on you because there's days we don't know what to do. We don't know how to we don't know how to fight this, how to battle this. There are days that it's just hard to figure out what it means to live, what that looks like to, to kind of go through life. And so today, Lord, may we lean back and rest in the fact that the battle belongs to you. But also, may we uh, celebrate that, that joy is in this place today. Joy is not, a, is not an emotion, Jesus. It's not, and you know this, it's not, it's not happiness. It's, it's a mindset. It's a state of being. It's how we live. Because our lives are connected to you, the possibility and the opportunity of joy is always available to us. So, so Jesus, today I pray that as we dive into your word, as we step into this week that culminates in you setting us free from sin and death, that we would find joy in you uh, in a new way. So, Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your name. Everybody said? All right. So, um, I don't want to, I, I, this week, I really honestly struggled when it came to um, writing this message for this morning. Uh, I got super deep into the men's series. It was awesome. It was an amazing thing to be a part of. Uh, and I never really came up to, like, periscope depth to realize, like, oh, yeah, now we're a week away from Easter. Um, so this is one that I wrestled with all week of, like, Jesus, what do you want, what do you want to say? What do we want to talk about? How do we unpack this? What, what are the things that, that we want to talk through? And honestly, I sat, normally I, I study on Wednesdays, and usually I try to write my sermons on Thursdays. I sat in my office Thursday and stared at a blank computer screen for, like, three hours. Um, and I'm like, well, you know, maybe it's because I'm, I'm missing my ADHD medicine. I got back on that. It didn't help. Um, so, again, it was one of those things I'm like, what, what, like, I, like Jesus, what do you want to say? It's kind of the prayer here. And I go back and forth. And I'm like, you, you got to give me something here. 
And then Friday morning, driving to work, I normally don't listen to music or anything on my way in. It's kind of my one, like, 30 minutes to be kind of quiet and kind of settle into the day. Well, I just decided to turn on the radio, and a Tom Petty song came on. Anybody Tom Petty fans in the room? Yeah, right on, right on. So this song, this Tom Petty song, I'd heard probably a thousand times before. I mean, I had this record on vinyl, like it was one of, one of his, his all-timers. I knew all the words, I'm singing along, but then I started as I was singing to pay attention to the lyrics. And what I realized is Tom Petty wrote a song almost 20 years ago in 1994 that can kind of sum up, at least for me, right, can kind of sum up like the mental and emotional and even spiritual state of humanity in 2023, almost 20 years too early. And in this song, Tom Petty talks about dealing with relationships that have ended. He talks about these kind of shallow, transactional friendships that move into his life and move out of his life without a whole lot of meaning. He talks about trying to numb out and self-medicate with questionable substances, right, and run from the feelings and, and situations that he just wants to escape and get away from. And in the chorus, if you haven't picked up on it yet, right, in the chorus he says something out loud over and over again, something that probably many of us have felt, I know I have, or we've thought to ourselves, or maybe even we've said this out loud to someone at one time or another. If you haven't guessed the title of the song yet, it's this. You don't know how it feels to be me. You don't know. Now you're like, yeah, thanks, Brad. Now that's going to be stuck in our heads. Um, but here's the thing. Like, we've said this. We've thought this. At some point in time in the last few years, as the world kind of turned upside down and went crazy, as we took stock and inventory of our own lives, at some point we started to feel this and we started to think this. We started to kind of lean and live into this of like, you know what, nobody really knows how I feel, what it feels like to walk in my shoes, what it feels like to live in my skin, what it feels like to live my life. You don't know how it feels to be me. And on one hand, right, this kind of idea of nobody knows what it's like to be me, like, can become a means of, like, justifying our behavior. Like, we say things like, you don't know how it feels to be me, so don't try to tell me what to do. Don't try to tell me how to live my life. I mean, all it takes is like a quick scan of Twitter to know that like life has become this kind of mix of hot take and outrage, right? It's this mix of just like, I'm going to drop some truth bombs on somebody today and don't you dare tell me how to live my life because you don't know how it feels to be me. So that's on one hand. On the other hand, we allow ourselves to become defeated by, by this idea. Like we think to ourselves, you don't know what it feels like to be me. So you know what? I... I'm not going to let my guard down. I'm not going to share this thing that I'm going through. Nobody understands what it's like to be me, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to kind of swallow my feelings and bury my emotions. And so one hand leads to selfishness. Don't you tell me how to live my life. You don't know. You don't know me. On the other hand, it leads to self-loathing. Nobody understands. Nobody wants to deal with me. Nobody's going to want to hear what I have to say. Nobody understands what it's like to be me. And here's the deal. Selfishness and self-loathing, neither one of them are healthy, good, right, best, or true. In fact, they're both destructive. They're destructive to us, and they're destructive to those around us. And so I picked up a book. I, this book got recommended to me by, by, by my counselor. It's called The Good and Beautiful Life by a guy named James Brian Smith. Now, I would recommend buy the book. It's a great book. Guys, don't be freaked out by the fact that it's got like a pretty blue butterfly on the cover, okay? You can read this in public. It's fine, right? But in this book, James Brian Smith, he says this. He says, we live at the mercy of our narratives, the stories we form, 
right? We make stories, right? We form stories to make sense of the world around us. They greatly influence how we think, which shapes what we believe to be true and not true about life. And ultimately, those stories and narratives, they determine how we live. Made me think about another book that I read a long time ago by Brene Brown. She says it like this, human beings, we're meaning-making machines. And that's true. We try to make meaning, we try to find symbolism, we try to find something that matters out of all of our experience. She says we often create stories to help attach meanings to the things that have happened to us, what's happening to us in the present, or what might happen to us in the future. And catch this, the most dangerous stories, she says, are the ones that challenge and diminish our lovability, which is our ability to receive and give love. The stories that challenge that, that would say, you're not worthy to receive love, nor do you have any love to give. The stories that challenge our our divinity, the fact that we were, like we talked about in the series before, created in the image and likeness of God. The fact that it's like, no, you know, God kind of made a mistake when he made, God God needs a do-over with you. Those kinds of stories. And ultimately the ones that challenge our creativity. So here's what a dangerous story sounds like. In the aftermath of a divorce, a dangerous story sounds like this. Nobody knows what it's like to be me. They don't know how it feels. Maybe when our name is on the list of the company layoffs, a dangerous story sounds like this. They don't know how it feels to be me. When someone we love dies or passes away, right, the the dangerous story sounds like this. No one knows how it feels to be me in the midst of this loss. When things turn out the way we, we didn't expect, like we didn't want this, we, this is not what we expected, this is not what we planned for, in the midst of that disappointment, here's a dangerous story. No one knows what it feels like to be me. No one knows the depth of this disappointment. No one in, in the history of humanity has ever been as disappointed as I am right now. No one knows what it's like to be me. And here's what we do. We find ourselves believing the messages and narratives that tell us in selfishness, you don't need anybody. You don't need anyone, and don't let anyone tell you that you do. Or we believe the narratives in this kind of place of self-loathing that says no one wants to deal with you. Like no one wants to hear your story. No one wants to see you cry. No one wants to hear how you're feeling. No one wants to deal with you. And in the end, all of these messages convince us of one thing, and that's this. I'm alone. I'm alone. It's me versus the world. There's nobody that I can connect to. There's nobody that I can talk to. No one wants to deal with me. And really, there's a part of us in kind of defiance in that moment. We say, I'm alone. I don't need anybody. And I'll prove it to you. I'll go through this life alone. There's an old saying that no man is an island who thinks they're an island is actually so. We believe, though, that we're alone. And here's the thing. As I, was thinking, I was thinking about today and, again, kind of praying through today and just kind of inviting Jesus into my own mess, which I'll tell you is, is sometimes deep and wide, right? I, I started to, in this conversation, this prayer that I was having with Jesus on Thursday morning, I, I just realized, like, I confessed, hey, Jesus, I need to tell you something. Like, I've been feeling something in my own life. I've been sensing something in my own life. And, and really, in the last few weeks, I've, I've, I've come face to face with this thing that I, I can kind of feel and sense in other people. And in this, my prayer with Jesus, like, again, it's kind of all over the place. Like, I, I, I told Jesus, I said, listen, I, I've only been able to describe this feeling as this kind of burning ache that's, like, deep down in my soul. And really in the soul of everybody that I encounter, the soul of humanity. It's everywhere. And I describe it like this. Like, it, it's like a dull pain. 
right? So like if you've ever been super hungry, it's like that burning feeling in your stomach where your stomach just kind of aches because you're starving. Or, or maybe like when you sleep on your neck wrong and like you have to turn like this, like you can't move your neck. It's like, there, or, or maybe even like when you have a toothache, it's this kind of constant, uncomfortable nagging reminder that something about us, something in us just isn't quite right. And really in the last couple of days, I've, I've had this moment, right, where Jesus has gone, hey, I'm going to pull back the curtain on this. I'm going to show you what this is. And this is kind of what I begin to realize, that the burning ache in the soul of humanity, myself included, is loneliness. It's loneliness. And some of us have a hard time admitting that. But I think if there's a part of us that if we said, you know what, yeah, that, that's right. And I feel that to some degree. And here's the thing. Like, we have terrible poker faces. We do. We think, like, I can put on this face, I can put on this show, and everybody's going to think that I'm fine, I'm good, everything's good in my life. But the reality is we have terrible poker faces. We all broadcast in some way, shape, or form this signal that is real and true about what's going on with us. And so in the last few weeks and months, like, I've seen loneliness on people's faces. This, this past weekend, or a couple weekends ago, when I was staffing this, this men's weekend, this men's retreat, I mean, I saw it on the posture of the dudes that walked into this, right? Grown men walked in, like, heads down and shoulders slumped, like, just tired, looked like they'd been carrying, like, like a 50-pound bag of concrete all day, just worn out and tired. I mean, even this week, I had conversations with folks that, that kind of went like this. It's like, well, listen, I, there's nobody in my life that I can talk to about this. I've got nobody that I can share this with. No one really wants to hear what's going on in my life. And here's the truth. Somewhere in our hearts and souls, we know the truth is this. We're lonely people. And we've become stuck, some of us, in these destructive narratives and messages of loneliness. And we hear that, that chorus of that song playing over and over and over on the tapes in our head. Nobody knows what it feels like to be me. And the more we play those tapes, the deeper and deeper into loneliness we get, either through selfishness or self-loathing. And here's what happens. Over time, we begin to separate. We begin to isolate, withdraw from other people emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually, either because we believe that, that we don't need anybody else, which is selfishness, or because we're convinced that people will never understand or they can never love someone like us. That's self-loathing. And somewhere along the line, here's where it gets real dangerous. We start adding God to that list. We start, you know what, I'm just going to add to that list. Oh, there's, there's my family, there's my friends, there's my coworkers, there's the people in my, there's the, all, they're all on that list. No one knows how it feels to be me. And either, here's the deal, I don't need to tell them that, or if I tell them that, maybe what's at risk is they'll stop being friends with me because no one wants to deal with somebody like me. And we started to add God to that list. And that works out one of two ways. We look at God and we say, I don't need you anymore. I can do this without you because you don't really know what it feels like to be me. Or we start to put words in God's mouth that he would never say, which is this. God, you don't want to deal with me. You don't want to deal with me because I'm too messy. I'm too broken. Matt Chandler calls it this. He calls it the anesthesia of deceit, which I think is a great image. He says that, that our enemy uses narratives and messages to kind of lull us into sleep, into separation and isolation and loneliness. And what does it do? It puts, it, it puts us out to sleep. We get knocked out cold, right, before we have the opportunity to see what is good, right, and true. So the question that we're going to unpack over the next couple of weeks in, in Easter is this. 
what, what is there, if anything? Like, what's out there that can counteract false narratives? Like, what, if anything, can soothe that deep ache of loneliness in our souls? How can we wake up from the anesthesia of deceit? How can we do this? Does, does anyone know how it feels to be us? And here comes your Sunday school churchy answer, right? The answer is yes. And if you look around the room at some of the artwork that's been displayed, we'll talk more about this on Friday when you come to Good Friday, but like, if you just look around the room and kind of go and approach some of these pictures and look at the, the captions that are below them, the answer is yes, there is someone who knows exactly what it feels like to be you, and his name's Jesus. And again, I know that's like, well, Brad, you kind of have to say that we're at church on a Sunday. Like, that's the Sunday school answer. That's the churchy answer. But here's the truth. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be us. And all we have to do is look up and see it because it's right there in front of us. But here's what happens. The I am alone messages that we believe, the, the no one knows what it feels like to be mean narratives that end up shaping our lives, they're designed to keep our heads down and our eyes fixed only on ourselves and our pain or our defiance. And when that happens, here's what happens, church. We miss out on the truth that's right in front of us. And so the question that we're going to answer over the next couple weeks is this. Which narrative do we want to listen to? The one that says, I am alone, or the one that says, Jesus, he gets us? One keeps us stuck. The other's going to set us free. And maybe you've seen the commercials. There were a handful of them that, that, that aired during the Super Bowl. The, the stories, these commercials that kind of tell these stories of Jesus, right? And it always ends with he gets us. And there's a website you can go to, right? I saw those commercials the first time about a year ago is when they started playing. And again, I told you guys last week, I don't really like listening to Christian music or watching Christian movies because I would rather listen to good, good music and watch good movies. That's just being honest, okay? It's like, but, and so like when Christian commercials come on TV, I'm like cringe. Like, ah, oh, they're always so corny and so cheesy. And so I started watching this commercial. This commercial airs, and it's like, the music is good. Like, the message is good. The, the commercial is good. And then it's like, it's all about Jesus. And I'm like, like who, who did this? You know, the kind of like inner skeptic and inner cynic is like, who's behind this? Like, who, who made a good Jesus commercial? And so I started to kind of lean into this, looked at the website, went to the website. But here's what, here's what really pushed it over the edge for me. Like old school, right? Max Lucado wrote a book in, in partnership with this organization, He Gets Us. And if Max is behind it, it's probably pretty good, right? But I got this book. I picked up the book, He Gets Us by Max Lucado. Again, another one I would recommend. And here's what he says when it comes to the, this message of He Gets Us or this message of I'm alone and choosing to, to believe which one. He says this, the most gut-wrenching cry of loneliness in history didn't come from a widow or a patient. It came from a hill, from a cross, from a messiah. When Jesus, at this moment of his crucifixion, looks up to the heavens and, and screams, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And Max Lucado says this, he who was once alone understands. And even as I was reading that, something in me started to shift. My head started to kind of look up a little bit. My eyes started to look up a little bit. And so what I want us to do this morning is grab your Bibles and open them up to Hebrews. Hebrews is kind of in the back, like almost back 25% of your Bible. It's in the, the New Testament, uh, the book of Hebrews, right? We're going to be unpacking that. We're going to be living in that uh, for most of the day today, right? But as you're flipping there, let me just set up a couple of things so we can wrap our heads around what's going on here. The main point, right, the thesis statement 
of the book of Hebrews can kind of be summed up like this. Again, don't give up on Jesus. Like that's kind of the main message in the book of Hebrews. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't walk away from Jesus. Why? Because he gets you now and he's got you forever. So if you could take all of the, the, the book of Hebrews and sum it up into kind of one thought, one statement, it's really that. Like, life is going to get hard. Life is going to get difficult. It's not always going to be easy. So when you face difficulty, when you deal with hard things, when you find yourself trapped in narratives of loneliness, remember, don't give up on Jesus. Why? Because he's, he gets you. He understands. And it's not just that. He's got you now, right? He gets you now, and he's got you forever. And so as you read through Hebrews, like, there's a pattern that emerges, and if we pay attention to Hebrews, like we pay attention to the lyrics of Tom Petty, right, it, it can start to undo this, like, I'm alone message, the message that we believe, the, 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 the narratives that we buy that kind of run our lives. And here's the pattern, okay? And really, it's, it's interesting, as you read Hebrews, you find that the author of Hebrews just starts doing laps, right? They just go around. He starts with, here's the truth about who Jesus is. This is a pattern. It's all throughout the book. It starts with the truth of who Jesus is. Then it goes into the evidence of why he understands us in this present moment. Like Jesus, even though he lived 2,000 plus years ago, he understands what it means to be human even now. So he starts with the truth of Jesus. He goes into the fact that Jesus gets us now. He goes into this, this then challenge right, or a warning even. Don't give up. Don't give up because you're going to miss out on something great. Don't give up. Don't let go of the rope. And then from that point, he goes into this place of going, look, he's got you forever. Like, that's kind of the pattern. That's the pattern that we, as we read through the book of Hebrews, you'll find that the author of Hebrews just kind of takes it around the circle again and again and again. Here's the truth. He gets you. Don't give up. He's got you. Here's the truth. He gets you. Don't give up. He's got you. Just keeps taking laps. So open up to chapter 1, verse 1. Okay, I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. A lot of times we read out of the ESV here, but the reason I'm going to read out of the NLT today is because the New Living Translation or the NIV, like you're like, are there different translations of the Bible? Yes, there's several. Uh, the NIV or the NLT, what they do is they kind of, they take the Bible thought for thought. And the ESV takes the Bible word for word. And so in this case, it's really important for us to get what the author wants us to get. So that's how we're going to read out of the NLT today. Here's what it says. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through prophets. Prophets were people. They were messengers. God would give them a message. They would deliver it to the people. And he says this. Now, in these final days, he's spoken to us through his son. He spoke to us through Jesus. Jesus came to speak the truth of God and to point us to the life that God desires for us. That adventure we call it the with God life. So here comes like the first stop on the lap, right? Here comes the truth of who Jesus is. Here's who Jesus is. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, he created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When Jesus cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. And here's what it shows us. This shows us who Jesus really is, that the Son is far greater than anything, including the angels. Just as the name God gave him is greater than anything, even their names. Okay, so one of the ways we take notes at Adventure is you just pull out your phone and take a picture of the screen. So I want you to make sure that you get this. So the first stop kind of on the laps, right, the, the track that is Hebrews, 
it, it starts with, here's the truth of who Jesus is. Based on these four verses, just the intro alone, here's what we can get, right? Number one, Jesus is the truth of God and God's word spoken directly to us, which means this. What Jesus gives us and what Jesus teaches us is a new message and a new narrative that's worth believing in. And again, we go back to messages and narratives. What do they do? They direct and guide our lives. They determine how we live. So Jesus says, I'm actually going to give you a new message and a new narrative that's going to lead you to a new way to live, which is that second piece. Jesus is the hope of new life. Hebrews tells us that he's an eternal priest. You know, priests were kind of the, the mediators between God and people, right? Priests back in the day were the connectors of God and people, right? They would connect and mediate that relationship. And Jesus, Hebrews tells us, is the eternal priest, meaning we don't need more priests. We've got one, and he lasts forever. And he's always doing this job of getting God and us in the same room and working things out. That's what he does. Hebrews tells us that he's the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Tells us that Jesus radiates God's glory and expresses his character. Tells us that he sustains everything by his command. And that Jesus sits at a place of honor and his name is greater than all names. So if you want to know who the truth of Jesus is, there it is. And the author of Hebrews wants us to know this. And here's why. If they were sitting here today, if the author of Hebrews was sitting here today, they would say this to us. Hang on to that. Hang on to the truth of who Jesus really is. Why? Because knowing and understanding and remembering who Jesus is is critical in light of what's coming next. Because here's the deal. If you're anything like me, there's this kind of inner skeptic and there's this inner cynic that says, I don't know if you can trust them. That sounds too good to be true. Right? We've got those voices that kind of whisper into our ears. I don't know if you can trust this, and this seems too good to be true. If you're like me, right, you want to know. Can I trust you, and is this real? And that's what the author of Hebrews says. Hang on to this. Hang on to this, because I know there's a party that says, I don't know if I can trust you, and I don't know if this is real. And you need to know, you can trust him, and it is real, because here's what's getting ready to happen. Jesus, the truth bringer, the new life provider, our forever and always, once and for all, connector to God, the sustainer of everything, he gets you. You're not alone. You're not alone. He gets you. If you go into Hebrews 2, just, just turn the page, one page, right? Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14. Here's the next stop, right? The next, the next kind of marker point on, the, on our lap, right? It's this. Here's what the author says. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son, Jesus, also became flesh and blood. He gets you. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of devil of the devil who had the power of death. And only in this way, which is, means being fully human and dying, could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to fear, the fear of death. The author goes on to say, therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters. Let's stop here. So if you got your Bible open or your Bible app, highlight that verse, right? No matter what translation you're reading, highlight that verse. When the author of Hebrews says that it was necessary for Jesus to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, that word literally translates in Greek that Jesus actively chose and owned his full humanity. It was his choice, and he owned his choice. Nobody forced Jesus to do it. No one made Jesus do it. He chose to be like us 
in every respect, in every way. Why? Here's the answer in Hebrews. So that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest, our forever and always connector to God, the one who gets us and God together in the same room and works it out. It says then, because Jesus gets us, he could offer a sacrifice, right? Again, the job of, of the priest on behalf of the people was to offer sacrifices. What would that sacrifice do? Take away the sins of all people once and for all. Since Jesus himself has gone through the same suffering and testing, he is able to help us. That word help means to relieve, to carry, to provide aid. To who? To us. When? When we're being tested. That's the second kind of marker point on this lap in Hebrews. Here we know the truth of who Jesus is. Now here's the real evidence that he gets us now in this moment. And here's what all this means. Because Jesus is who he is. He begins to cancel these narratives and messages of loneliness, and he brings this new message. And the new message is this. He gets us. And by understanding us, Jesus, what he starts to do is he starts to lift our heads and lift our eyes so that we can see, in fact, we're not alone. You might be going, all right, but how do we know this? Like, how do we know Jesus really gets us? Like, Where's the proof? Like, this is nice, but where's the proof? Today, like we said, it's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, kind of in the church calendar, right? We call it that because what we celebrate on Palm Sunday is the moment, like Matt said earlier, when Jesus arrived and rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And there's a lot of symbolism there. There's a lot of really cool stuff. You can dive into that in groups, right? But, but, but when he arrived in town on the back of a donkey, right, all the people in Jerusalem, which was packed to the gills because the Passover festival was, was happening. So Jerusalem, which normally was a big city, was sometimes like five, six, seven, even ten times more populated during festivals because people, Jews from all over the world, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. So Jerusalem was packed to the gills with people, and these people, they come out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus, right? And they greet Jesus like he's a king, which what they do in the Bible tells us that they put their jackets, their cloaks on the ground, right? They, they, they rip palm branches off of trees. They lay them on the ground like they're rolling out the red carpet because the king has arrived. And Luke tells us that, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem from Bethany. Bethany is like a suburb of Jerusalem. It's just outside the city. Right? The distance right, from, from Bethany to the temple in Jerusalem was two miles. Two-mile trip, not very long. A two-mile donkey ride. What I want us to catch here, though, is in this two-mile donkey ride, a short trip, catch all of the things that Jesus experiences in a short amount of time. It says this in Luke 19, starting in verse 36. As he, Jesus, rode along, they, the people, spread their cloaks out on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise, just like we do this morning. The battle belongs to you. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. They were praising with a loud voice. Why? Because of all of the mighty works that they had seen. And here's what they were saying. They were looking at Jesus saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And in the midst of this celebration, the Bible tells us that some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the crowd, they start yelling to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Let's pause right here for just a second. Kind of imagine this scene, right? As, as some are coming out to greet Jesus and welcome him into the city, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the self-righteous people, right? They're actually coming out with a completely different agenda. 
Some people are coming out to welcome him in. They're coming out to push him out, right? Some people are coming to bring him in. They're coming to oppose him, right? You're not on our team, Jesus. And they're shouting at Jesus. Hey, make these people stop calling you a king. Make these people stop treating you like you're a king. Make them stop laying palm branches and their cloaks on the ground. Make them stop rolling out the red carpet. Why? Because to the Pharisees and religious leaders in this day, Jesus wasn't the king. He wasn't the king that they wanted. Jesus didn't live up to their expectations. Jesus didn't support their agenda. And so let me ask you this this morning. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where not, no matter what you did or what you said, you knew it's never going to be good enough? Why? Because for whatever reason, you're not the one that they wanted. You're not the kind of person they expected, and at the end of the day, they flat out don't like you. And so you live under this pressure of no matter what I do, no matter what I say, I'm never going to be enough. You ever hear that message? So Jesus, he gets what ridicule and opposition and what unfair, unjust hatred feels like. Jesus knows what it feels like to, in the eyes of some people to never be enough, to never be good enough, to never add up. No matter what I do, I'll never gain their approval. Here's what we can take away. Jesus gets us. He knows what that feels like. Look down in verse 41. It says, when he drew near to the city, Jesus saw the city and he wept over it. So again, two-mile donkey ride, not long. Jesus goes from being the target of hate and ridicule to now being overwhelmed with sadness for the hearts of the people in the city. In Matthew's account of this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the biographies of Jesus. They tell his story. In Matthew's account of this moment, Matthew tells us that, that the people that came out to meet Jesus were saying this word. They were crying out this word, Hosanna, which this word Hosanna means this, please help us. Please save us. They're shouting to Jesus, get us out of this mess. Help us, save us, rescue us. And maybe, again, there have been times for us in our lives, whether it's at the end of a marriage, whether it's in the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one, where we cry out in the same way of somebody get me out of this mess. Is there any way to be rescued? Is there any way to be saved? Can someone please help? Maybe we've cried out in the same way that the people in Jerusalem are crying out, Jesus, help me. Or maybe we've cried out for other people, right? Those in our lives who are hurting. See, well, here's what we need to know. Jesus, his heart breaks for us in moments like that. Jesus, the Bible tells us that he weeps, which isn't like a whimper. It's not like single tear, right? He weeps, he sobs. So here's what we can take away from this. Jesus gets in the mess and our desperation, right? He gets in the mess and desperation of all of our loneliness, and he cries with us, and he cries for us. Jesus gets us. You skip down a few verses to verse 45. Luke tells us that as he entered the temple, Jesus began to drive out people who were selling sacrifices. And he, sa he says to them, it's written, right, my house, my church, shall be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. Here's what was happening. So people would travel from all over the world, and if you traveled from all over the world, you had to come a great distance, right? You didn't want to kind of lug around a sacrifice with you, whether it was like an animal, like a lamb or, or whatever, or, or a cow or, or just crops. You didn't want to lug that stuff around with you. You had enough to carry. 
And so you would get to Jerusalem, and there would be people that would kind of set up in the temple and say, listen, you don't have to lug your, your sacrifice here. We'll just sell you one. But the way that they did that, they ripped them off. They would overprice and overcharge for these sacrifices. And so you have poor people coming in from all over the world who are being taken advantage of in church. And on top of that, the Bible tells us that there were money changers. And what that was is, is again, Rome kind of occupied the planet at this time. And Rome had their own currency. Well, in the temple, the temple had a different currency. And so when you came, you had to exchange Roman currency for, for the temple currency. And what the people, again, in the church would do is you would give them their Roman currency and they would crush you on the exchange rate. Well, well this is only worth this much. They'd rip you off. And Jesus, again, short donkey ride, starts on the outside, comes on the inside, makes his way into the temple, and he sees the way the people in the church are treating outsiders, and he flips tables. He gets angry. Some of us in this room, we've experienced church hurt. We know what it's like. We know what it's like to be taken advantage of. We know what it feels like to be treated unfairly or unjustly or unjustly in the church. And we don't, we're not quite sure how to act. Like, what are we supposed to do in this moment? You want to know, you know how Jesus feels about our experiences of church hurt? He gets angry, and he flips tables, and he runs people out. He doesn't let it slide. And so for some of us in the room, Jesus, he understands the effect of church hurt. And Jesus doesn't give it a pass. He doesn't let it slide. He puts a stop to it. Why? Because he gets us. And here's what I want us to catch, all right? We're almost done. All of this, the ridicule, the hate, the grief, the sadness, the mourning, the weeping, the anger, all of this happens in the course of a two-mile donkey ride. We're talking in the span of minutes. Jesus is hated and ridiculed. He expresses grief and mourning and sadness over the hurt in the lives of people that he loves. He gets righteously angry over the church hurting people. And there's so much more. When you begin to read the, biography about the biographies of Jesus, here's what we find, right? That Jesus got tired. He was hungry. He needed to sleep. Jesus needed some alone time. Like a lot of Jesus' disciples were like high school age guys. And it's like, listen, guys, I need a little bit of space, right? Like I need a little alone time. Jesus experienced joy and sorrow and sadness and loss and frustration, and the list goes on and on and on. The bottom line for us is this. Palm Sunday isn't just a random Sunday before Easter where we, like, our kids look cute waving palm branches on the stage, and we unpack the story of Jesus' arrival. Palm Sunday is the Sunday, that it's the reminder of the truth of who Jesus really is, that he gets us. That he can change the narratives and messages of loneliness in our lives to you're not alone. And that changes everything. So don't give up. It's kind of that next stop in Hebrews. The next stop on, on kind of those laps that we run in Hebrews is this. Now we know who Jesus really is. We've seen the proof and the evidence, not only from Scripture, but in the life of Jesus, that he gets us right now in this moment. Jesus understands you. So the next stop is don't give up. Don't let go of the rope, no matter how hard it gets. Going back into Hebrews chapter 4, it says this. So then, since we have such a great high priest who's entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. We know who Jesus is. We know we're not alone. Don't give up. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings that we do. He gets us. And yet he didn't sin. And I've heard people argue this, right? That, that at this point, it's like, well... 
If he didn't sin, how can he fully understand me? There's a great quote, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's in, in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, where C.S. Lewis is arguing with a guy. A guy brings this up to C.S. Lewis says, listen, the fact that Jesus sinned, never sinned, means that th- there's no way he can get us. And C.S. Lewis says, listen, here's the deal. Jesus not only experienced temptation and didn't sin, but he experienced the full force of temptation and testing. The way C.S. Lewis says it, says it is like this. How can a man who gives in to temptation and testing after five minutes know what it feels like after an hour? Jesus experienced the full force of testing because he gave, he, the, the, it pressed in on him. And, and, it, and that pressure, right, he felt that pressure, that crushing pressure of temptation and testing, and yet never gave in. So actually, Jesus knows what it feels like to be tested more than any of us do because he felt the full force of it. So what then? Author of Hebrews says this, in light of all of that, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, Here's what happens. There we'll receive his mercy. And we'll find grace, we'll find his grace to help us when we need it most. Again, it's not just that Jesus gets us now, but also that he's got us forever. That's what Jesus says. That's the messaging. And so here's the truth. Here's where we're going to land today, right? Here's why Jesus gets us, right? Jesus gets us in order to make it possible for us to get him. That's the whole point of this. The, the story of Easter, right, which is the gospel, right? The, the gospel isn't about you and I being able to pull Jesus down into our reality to make us feel better when things get difficult. The gospel is about Jesus pulling us up into his reality to give us a life that is better. It's not just about feeling better. It's about leaning into something and stepping into something that's only offered through Jesus that actually is better. A new reality. A new way to live. And so he gets us can be summed up like this. Jesus became like us in every way so that through faith in him and by being disciples of him, we can become like him. That's the truth, church. When the narratives and messages of loneliness change, when we, when, when we begin to buy into and lean into and allow the new narrative and the new message that Jesus gives us, that I get you, you're not alone, I've got you, here's what happens. We become selfless instead of being selfish. Instead of being unloved and unlovable, we love others like we love ourselves because we know that we are loved, that he gets us. And so where we're going to land today, kind of the kickoff of Holy Week, this week that changes the course of human history forever, This Palm Sunday, right, it's the day that the king rode into town to blow open the doors of his kingdom. And everything that's going to happen over the course of the next seven days will show us this, that Jesus gets everything about us so that we can get everything about him that he desires for us to have. That's the message of the gospel. That's the truth of what happens of the beginning, the the work that Jesus began today. It's going to come to a, a culmination next Sunday. We celebrate the fact that they tried to kill Jesus, but he didn't stay dead. It didn't work. It's all so that that we can get to this place. We know the truth of who he is, which changes the narrative. He gets us. We're not alone. Don't give up because he's got you. 
dreams, a new way to live, a new reality, a new opportunity to step into the life that Jesus desires for you to have, that he made possible. And that doesn't happen the day after your funeral, the day of your funeral, right? That eternal life doesn't happen when we die. The new life, right, that Jesus wants us to live happens and begins the moment we say, all right, you get me. I got you. That new life begins at that moment. That's what today marks the beginning of. So today, if you want to to talk more about Jesus, I'd love to to chat with you about Jesus. If you've never put your trust or your faith in Jesus, I'd love to do that for you today. Because here's